Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. Drew and I are recording this week's show on Monday, October 31st, 2022, Halloween. I'm going to treat myself to Wendell in the Wild when Drew and I finish recording today's show. That became available for streaming this past Friday, October 28th. I had its world premiere at the Toronto Animation Festival back on September 11th, and then a limited theatrical release uh, just last week, starting on the 21st. Drew, so far, it's gotten a largely positive response. I was just looking over at Rotten Tomatoes, so we have an 80% freshness, uh, what, a 73 audience score. Main complaint seems to be kind of a loose plot, but you enjoyed it, right? I did enjoy it. I mean, I think that you'll enjoy it for the same reasons I did, Jim, that it's just wonderful to be back in Henry Selleck's delightfully uh, bonkers world. And uh, I think that Jordan and uh, Michael do a great job. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's fun to be there. It is definitely a loose plot. I don't think it totally gels. And also, from what we understood doing the press days and things, there was a fairly 11th hour editorial revision, which I think you can feel a little bit. But all that said, I am just so thrilled that this movie exists and that we get to enjoy it and that you get to watch it on Halloween, Jim. I mean, it's just absolutely perfect for that. But Drew has effectively double dipped this weekend because you got to see uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, right? I did. I did. And you were just teasing me about the Q&A afterwards where you, you, you got to hear Guillermo and Phil Tippett? I did. Yeah, they were they were in conversation. It was actually at the Animation is Film Festival, which is just a wonderful event. We should really try to cover that next year in depth, Jim, okay. because it really is a wonderful event in L.A. Mm-hmm. And yes, ran into so many fun people there. Um, Jorge Gutierrez was there oh. from Maya and the Three and mm-hmm. just a lot of fun animation people who we love. So Cool, cool. But I will talk all about that in the second half of the show. Just to dip back to Wendell Wild a little bit, interesting to see how it does viewership-wise. I mean, Netflix just re-released its third quarter earnings report and as part of that info dump, did you see where that streamer revealed to the investment community that the Sea Beast, which debuted on the subscription streaming service back in July 8th of this year, it has now become Netflix's most watched original animated feature? Yes, although there is some obscurity to that number because it didn't specify whether it was a Netflix-produced animated feature or one that was picked up because I do find it hard to believe that it was watched more than Mitchell's versus the Machines or something like Vivo. But maybe it, maybe it was. I don't know. I mean, you know, Netflix is always you know playing its... Pick a card, any card, yeah. without actually reports, you know, ratings. But, yeah. They put out the info that this was viewed by Netflix subscribers more than 165 million hours during the first 28 days of Beast being in release on, on Netflix. So, and evidently, that's the crucial viewership measurement when it comes to subscription streaming services. But... Hocus Pocus 2, which debuted on Disney Plus on September 30th of this year, now has the largest viewership for a movie shown on a subscription streaming service since the Nielsen's first began measuring streaming programming uh, back in 2020. But Netflix lists its things by hours. So again, we had 65 million hours for Seabees. Disney, on the other hand, does minutes 
So you know, they're like, oh, look at Hocus Pocus 2. It got it was viewed 2.725 billion minutes worth of viewing. So it's like, can we just pick one unit of measure and stick with that? Yeah. But it's interesting because you know, the what even counts as a view online is always totally shifting. Yeah. So I wonder if they're just trying to keep up with whatever the next kind of measurement will be because it was like well, if you watched a YouTube video for three minutes mm. and it's a you know forty-five minute video, it's still that's still a view. But obviously, I think we're both super thrilled for Chris and that Definitely. that movie is so wonderful and I feel like so kind of underheralded. As we march into award season, it's going to be interesting to see who Netflix selects to throw in the spotlight. And then, given where you are now with the critic circle and that sort of thing, I'm. I'm going to be fascinated with your take on the inside game here as to who puts what up for which awards. Yeah, I'm going to be finding that out very soon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because it was about this same time last year that Disney made the decisions about which songs it was going to walk out for the score for Encanto. And Bruno's cute, but, you know, let, let's go with that love ballad, the butterfly number. And it's like, okay, that bit is in the butt. Oh, uh, before we step step <laughs> off of Hocus Pocus, Hocus Pocus would appear to be an ongoing franchise at Disney. David Kirshner, the producer of the original film from 93, is now reportedly working with Disney Theatrical to turn Hocus Pocus into a musical for the stage. And the other one that I thought was really intriguing was Kathy Najimy, when she was out doing publicity for Hocus Pocus 2, said that she's campaigning for Disney when they do the inevitable Hocus Pocus 3, that this time it, it should be animated. In fact, ideally, it should be stop motion, which I, I thought was kind of an interesting choice. I would love to see that. Yeah. I mean, if they, 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 they have to do it soon, <laughs> sooner rather than later. They can't let another 35 years pass pass by, but yeah. That's a very polite way of putting it, Drew. <laughs> Listen, we're all mortal. We're all mortal creatures, Jim. You know, we have a shelf life. We got to, you know. My sell-by date was many, many years ago. Okay. Um, more animation news <laughs> to follow, folks. But, uh, but as always, the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network for a worry-free travel experience every time. Please book online at storybookdestinations.com. And we were just talking about uh, the next Hocus Pocus possibly being done, uh, animated film. One hiccup with that plan was, according to what Bob Chapek said just last week during his appearance at the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live conference, Bob doesn't seem to believe the, that adults watch animation. Our fans and audiences put their kids to bed at night after watching Pinocchio, Dumbo, or The Little Mermaid. And then they're probably not going to tune into another animated movie. They they want something for them. Chapek, in this part of his talk with Matt Burry, the, the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal, is basically talking about the idea about how he's open to the idea of Disney Plus having some R-rated content, which would then potentially up the appeal of the company's subscription streaming service to the adult market. Also, it's worth noting here that there's a lot of the film library that Disney bought from Fox that's R-rated that, frankly, they can't do anything with yet, because, or at least on Disney+, Plus, at least in the States, because it's a family thing. 
We are now two years and a week out from the release of Deadpool 3, which is supposed to arrive in theaters November 8th of 2024. And based on what Sean Levy and Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman have been saying, with the arrival of Wolverine, the next Deadpool movie is going to be far fouler and bloodier than the original two, which is saying something. But given what Chapek just said, what do you make of what's going on with Strange World right now? To put the best possible spin on it. What is going on with Strange World? Well, no, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, it's like it doesn't have a presence. And we are on Wednesday, November 23rd. This Don Hall film shows up in theaters. And I get that Disney has this this highly anticipated sequel, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which, which by the way, you've seen, right? And... And we like. I have seen it. Yes. Okay. And and I did like it a lot. Yeah. It's okay. All right. <laughs> you're trying to get your. I I listened to you and Aaron's mm-hmm. you know podcast. I know you've already. The cat is already out of the bag on that one. But there is. But what do you think the plan here is? I mean, it's just so much is riding on Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. I mean, that's the big film for the fall for the company. What do you think the plan is that after the Veterans Day weekend? On Monday the 14th, <laughs> you know, suddenly we see this tidal wave of ads for Strange World. Well, that's interesting, Jim, because there are there are billboards out here. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say they are absolutely terrible. It's literally the logo with the blob character, Splat, mm-hmm. I believe it's called, uh, like laying down on top of the title treatment. Aww. That's the entire billboard. I mean, it is awful. And you're right, there hasn't been really a, a trailer that's really captured what the movie is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked that I haven't seen it yet, if I'm being honest. I think it's really weird that they haven't shown press the finished movie yet. You know, there was a long lead day right after D23. Mm-hmm. I think actually the weekend after D23. Mm-hmm. And um, that is it. Like, you know, there hasn't been anything else... My my guess is that this is kind of a almost like a Netflix obligatory theatrical release and mm-hmm. that we'll have it on Disney Plus by Christmas again. Mm-hmm. That's my conspiracy theory as to what is going on. But I I don't know that for sure. But you're right, Jim. It's It's been totally swept under the rug. I feel like there's been very little attempt at explaining what it is. Um, you know, I have the press day in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and there's like two cast members from the cast Mm -hmm. participating, which I think is super weird. Yeah, everything about it is just odd. It's odd. You're right. It's it's weird. I agree completely. We have Black Panther Wakanda Forever opening on the 11th. Obviously, we'll have a strong second weekend because it's Marvel. Stranger Things opens theatrically on Wednesday the 23rd. The very next day on Disney Plus, Thanksgiving Day, we get disenchanted. Oh, actually, breaking news, Jim, that moved up to the 18th. Oh, you are disenchanted. You're kidding me. Really? So I just just negated whatever point you were about to make. Wow. Did just today did that drop or? It it, it happened, I think, like last week or something. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing now because realistically, though, that does suddenly take some heat off of Stranger World because I... I felt like it was in a vice between Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and then Disenchanted. And now, at least it it has, starting on the 23rd, it, it's not suddenly getting its knees knocked out from under it by Disenchanted. But that's also a lot of 
stuff to to fight against, isn't it? Oh yeah, and and think about that. We have we, we have Willow at the end of the month. We have that's oh, November thirtieth, I believe. We have the Santa Clauses is coming out in November. Uh, we have the the uh, Christmas special, the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special on the twenty fifth. Oh. So your point still holds about that, Jim. Yeah. And uh, obviously that'll take up a lot of oxygen. So it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. I think you are are right though about when it comes to. Uh, what's going to happen with Stranger Worlds? I feel like, in, in a weird sort of way, this will be kind of an Encanto situation that, you know, when it becomes available in December, probably right around Christmas, a lot of people will discover this movie then. I, you know, I just, I feel bad for Don. Don Hall, the director of this, deserves better. This does it deserve the, a coherent advertising campaign and in its own time in the spotlight and i just feel like it's going to be one of those here's your hat what's your hurry <laughs> you know, it's like here we, we put up we put up billboards right. in la that are incomprehensible what do you mean we didn't do anything <laughs> well jim just think about pretty pretty soon we'll get a report about how many minutes strange world has been watched on oh Disney well Plus. there we go really as opposed to ours yes the billions of minutes yeah all right well anyway speaking of animated features in the holiday season did you see this thing about Munich-based uh, Studio 100 Media? They're prepping a brand new animated version of Heidi. The gentleman who's writing the script for it, Rob Sparkling, uh, or Sprackling, excuse me, he's the same guy who wrote Nomeo and Juliet. So uh, I don't know if that's exactly the tone I want for you kind know, of the story of the little girl and her grandfather far up in the mountains, you know, herding goats. But that's supposedly arriving in theaters in 2024. And the other part of this, as you read down into the press release, one of the storylines for this film is going to be about lynxes. They, they were a, uh, a, a Eurasian a cat. cat. Well, not necessarily yeah. little. It's, it's a, in fact, they list it as a large carnivore which basically went extinct in the Alps when it was hunted for its fur. And it's only just recently been reintroduced and they're trying to bring it back from the brink. I, I'm not exactly sure how the whole Lynx thing works in with Grandfather and his goats. I feel like the, the Heidi, the animated Heidi mm. that Miyazaki worked on, the animated series, is something that has that actually has more of a cultural footprint than people talk about. Mm -hmm. I feel like it was... I've heard that it was it was localized for a number of countries in the 80s and 90s. And I, I remember, I mean, I don't know how I saw it, but I remember watching it mm -hmm. somewhere. So it's interesting that there's going to be this new approach because I, I feel like the story does have a pretty important animated history to it. Yeah. And which I know you re you remember the, the animated show or whatever that was well, back in the day. I, and I'm trying to remember if the, didn't the Sherman brothers do One Swing at Heidi? Song oh, of did Heidi? They? Some, yeah. Heidi's Song, I think it was called. Well, again, they, they did a lot of stuff during those years when they were away from Disney. You know, I mean, some of it was pretty good. You know, the Charlotte's Web and. The Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn films they did for Reader's Digest, and then there were other projects. Like, did you ever see their their musical version of King Kong, which features Jody Benson as the uh, I'm, I'm blanking the name of the the, the woman who gets in, held in Kong's hand for much of the movie? But oh yes, uh, Claire, I want to say okay, yeah, something like that. Okay, uh, 
Oh, it was an animated film. It oh, was. my God. It was. Was it terrible? It was one of those things where you would go to Target or Walmart and there would be a copy, maybe two, on the end cap. <laughs> you know, and it just to the effect of, hey, if we're out of Little Mermaids, have you noticed that Jody Benson is also in this? You know, and, you know, I want to be where the people are, where I'm not being held by a giant ape man. You know, just sort of like, yeah, a, a lovely song for children. So, yes, there have been animated Heidi's to date, and this one will have links, so it'll be different, Drew, so we'll have to check it out. Okay, we were just talking about Halloween, and what's fascinating is if you're following social media at all, <laughs> you go to the Disney theme parks, they are putting up the Christmas decorations right now. So it, it's literally, you know, put up the garland and obscure the pumpkins that you'll be pulling down on November 1st. So uh, speaking of the holidays, when we get back, in addition to Drew sharing his thoughts on Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, uh, we're going to talk about an animation great who we associate with a lot of our favorite holiday specials who we just lost. But first this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You had seen clips and, and pieces of the film previously, but but now you've seen the entire film, right? I have seen it, Jim. I have seen the whole enchilada. Yes, I have. And I loved it. I mean, it is really, you know, as much as I love Wendell and Wilde, mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a wonderful film, mm -hmm. you know, and it, and it really hits a lot of the, the Halloween season sweet spot. But I think that this Pinocchio is really a, a work of art mm -hmm. and it is just really profound and moving and dark and unexpected and, and all of these things that, that you really, ex I mean, I guess it is sort of expected if you, if you're coming to a Guillermo del Toro movie, but mm -hmm. you know, it's just really, really beautiful. And, uh, Mark Gustafson was his direct co-director, not, uh, he's not labeled as a co-director. They both directed the movie, but mm -hmm. You know, he was the animation director on Fantastic Mr. Fox and is, and is basically a legend in animation. He worked under Will Vinton, wow. okay. who was his sort of mentor. And uh, it's just amazing. The amazing. It's just, 
yeah, I can't wait for everyone to see it. But just have have the uh, hanky adjacent Jim because there will be there will be tears. There were two men, grown men, sitting next to us mm-hmm. who were absolutely sobbing uh, their eyes out for the last. 15 minutes of the movie. So wow. just be prepared, Jim. Okay. And and going into this, Guillermo did talk about this one is interesting in that it has a setting in kind of the 1930s. Is that correct? Like, you know, Italy then? Or? Yeah. It's sort of set against the rise of fascism mm-hmm. in Italy. Okay. Um, which is really interesting mm-hmm. because, you know, one of the subplots is that a kind of fascist soldier mm-hmm. wants to because because Pinocchio cannot die mm-hmm. he thinks that Pinocchio is the ideal kind of fascist youth mm-hmm. which is really interesting I mean this is how dark this movie gets okay. <laughs> and don't they I mean the Zemeckis version of Pinocchio that sort of half sung half talk thing that Tom Hanks did at the opening of, of that film sort of referenced the 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 notion that Geppetto had lost a son, and that yes. this was kind of what was driving the story. And and as I understand it, that's kind of obliquely done in you know the the, the Disney live action remake of the the film from nineteen forty. But this one kind of puts it right in the front window, right? I mean, Geppetto is still oh yeah 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 the opening the opening shot is him clearing off his mm-hmm. son's grave, and the story is very tragic and and obviously ties into. Mm-hmm everything else that happens in the movie and Mm. um, the contrast between this one and the Disney one that just came out could Mm. not be, you know, could not be starker, Jim. It's really, it's a really interesting kind of uh, compare and contrast because they are just so, so different and take such wildly different approaches, not, you know, just to the original source material, Mm -hmm. but Pinocchio in general and, you know, during the Q&A with Phil Tippett, he talked about how this was the one time he allowed his name mm-hmm. to be used before the title of a movie. Mm-hmm. So this is actually Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio because mm-hmm. he felt that the Disney version is so iconic. The, mm-hmm. the Collodi version is obviously so iconic. Mm-hmm. But this is something very different that he was he was comfortable with putting his name in front of, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah. Okay. And prior to getting the uh, to see the full film, uh, you were talking about how folks out west were saying that you know potentially this this is the one to try to beat come award season. Having seen the full film now, still feel the same way? Or yeah, I do. I mean, I think this is what 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 will be interesting to me is that I feel like this could be in a number of categories. Mm-hmm. I feel like costumes cinematography, editing, I feel like they could really go for that. And I feel like it's important for them to at least try because animation has been put in this box just like just like Bob Chapek just did of yeah. you know, it's a, it's movies for kids mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. it's an amazing art form and you know, they talked about how animation was really only put in that box when it started making money. Before that, animation could have been anything, and animation should be anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you do go for some of these technical awards in the below-the-line categories, mm-hmm. it will open things up to where other animated films can get placed there. I mean, I think that I don't think there was any reason that Encanto shouldn't have been nominated for costumes last mm-hmm. year because the costumes were so amazing. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, I think that Pinocchio is an important 
and it's an important movie for a lot of ways, for a lot of reasons, and I think that it could really do a lot of good in the industry. So we'll see. Okay. It's been a okay. great year for animation, though. It's really hard this it, year. It, it's going to be difficult. No, no, no. I agree. I agree. Speaking of uh, kind of the year being difficult, we've lost a, a number of folks just in the past. Got me you kind know, of. We were talking on the last show about you know, uh, you know, Dame Angela Lansbury, and and just this past week we lost Jules Bass. I'm assuming that all by himself, that name doesn't ring a bell for a lot of people. But if you you pair Jules with his longtime partner Arthur Rankin Jr., that name Rankin Bass, you'll know. Uh, you know, because again, that's the team behind you know best loved holiday specials like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and and Frosty the Snowman. I know that Rankin-Bass did do a lot of hand-drawn stuff. I mean, for example, their 1969 version of Frosty. But for a lot of folks, when they think Rankin-Bass, they think stop motion. They think of the original Rudolph from 64, their animation style, and a magic. The way that worked is the projects were all boarded here in the States, and then the boards were sent over to Japan for animation, and at least for the stop motion stuff. It was a lot of dolls with wire armatures and, and again, the whole one frame at a time thing. But what's lesser known about a Rankin-Bass these days is after the success of Rudolph in 64, Rankin-Bass dabbled in full-length films for theatrical release. And there was one that was completely stop motion called Mad Monster Party. Have Have you ever seen this one, Drew? With the, the oh yeah, I would I would put this on in the video store a lot during Halloween. I think <laughs> as a movie, it, I I think it really kind of pushes it a little bit. Oh, I mean, I think yeah. for ninety minutes, it's it's like how many kind of borscht belt jokes? I would and, no, you know, it, it, yeah, very much so, very much so. But it's. That you get a stop-motion Boris Karloff. Yes. This is in the same window of time that Mr. Karloff also did, you know, How the Grinch Stole Christmas and that sort of thing. It was kind of the very tail end of his career. But you have Phyllis Diller basically doing her stand-up act. In, the, in fact, she plays the bride of Frankenstein, and she actually refers to Frankenstein a lot in the movie as Fang, which is what Phyllis used to refer to her husband in her stand-up act as Fang. It's one of those movies where, yeah, the gang's all here. I mean, Frankenstein's monster is there. Dracula's, you know, in fact, they keep referring to it, the monster it, and when it finally shows up, isn't it King Kong? Well, yeah, I think it's a thinly veiled King Kong, yeah. There we go. (laughs) A legally dissimilar King Kong. (laughs) There we go. There we go. But of the Rankin-Bass attempts at doing features of the 60s, the one... That fascinates me is the Daydreamer. It's uh, basically a, a the story of Hans Christian Andersen, and what's kind of interesting is focuses on the very young Hans Christian Andersen, and you know as opposed to the, the Danny Kay film that that Samuel Goldwyn did back in the fifties with the with the Frank Lesser score, and and that sort of rose out of uh, the wreckage of the the project that Goldwyn and Disney were working on. They 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 at one time they were going to team to do a life story of Hans Christian Andersen, where the movie would periodically step to do the individual stories of Hans Christian Andersen, and then switch back to live action of the actual. So this idea gets carried over to the same thing, the Daydreamer. But if you're a fan of theme parks and 
by proxy, that means you're also a fan of the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair because, you know, so many of the classic Disney shows, whether it's Carousel of Progress or Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln or It's a Small World, started out at that fair. And one of the other things that was done in Flushing Meadows is, was the Belgian Village. This was a, kind of a weird carryover from an earlier uh, fair. In fact, I want to say it was 1933, 1934 in Chicago. It wasn't an official World's Fair. It was like a celebration of industry. But they had created this authentic Belgian village from the 1500s that, you know, 100 different shops and, and churches and that sort of thing. And people, people loved it. So we jump ahead some 30 years and Belgium wants to be represented again at the 64-65 fair. So they decide, let's build the village again. And uh, the problem is it falls behind schedule. The fair opens in April of 64. The Belgium village doesn't open till August. But is an immediate hit largely because of the butterbeer of the 64 World's Fair, which was the Belgian waffle. You could go to this side of the fair and they'd sell you a hot Belgian waffle that had been drizzled with chocolate sauce and whipped cream, and people just loved it. So they did great business. Anyway, the fair closes at you know, the end of its second season, October 17th, 1965. And the very night that the fair closes, somebody sneaks up into the 100-foot-tall tower at the, in the Belgian village and steals all of the bells out of the bell tower. You got to love New Yorkers. <laughs> You know, it's like the thing's been closed today and let's let's break in and steal the bells. But the very next week, as Flushing Meadow is now, the bulldozers are rolling in all corners of, of Flushing Meadow, Meadow, flattening all other parts of the, uh, the New York World's Fair. Inside of the Belgian village, Rankin Bass has assembled a live action crew and they are shooting the live action portions of the daydreamer so you know they're, they're pretending that you know they're now in denmark and in fact jack guilford is playing hans's dad and and then it's it's this weird collection of performers and they were clearly trying to capture a little wizard of oz magic because for example ray bolger the, the scarecrow from the wizard of oz he plays the pie man from simple simon he's he's walking through they are dancing through the village selling pies. And then Margaret Hamilton, the, the Wicked Witch from The Wizard of Oz, she plays a customer of Hans's dad, who is a cobbler in this film. And he's like, where's Shoemaker? Where's my shoe? And then on the stop motion side of things, they do stories like Thumbelina and The Emperor's New Clothing and The Little Mermaid. But Rankin-Bass really leans into people we know from Disney. I mean, for example, Haley Mills is the voice of The Little Mermaid, whereas uh, her father, Triton, is uh, voiced by uh, Burl Ives, who you know, made a bunch of, of films for Disney in the, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Likewise, when we get to The Emperor's New Clothing, who's voicing that character but Ed Wynn? And when we get to the tale of Thumbelina, who's back in the vo voice cast, but Boris Karloff again. Evidently, when, when Boris came in to voice Mad Monster Party, they also asked him, well, you know, could you do the voice of the rat? You know, the gentleman who's trying to marry Thumbelina. But, you know, if you're a fan 
of theme park history and by proxy that means you'd be interested in the 64 World's Fair. If you want to see what the Belgian village looked like right after the fair closed, it's very empty. It's interesting to watch all of these Broadway trained dancers trying to fill up these giant village squares, you know, when there's only like 10 or 12 of them. But yeah, definitely worth checking out. And to slide back to Rankin Bass as, as a company, they were very forward thinking. In fact, who is it who did the original Lord of the Rings movie? You know, the, the same gentleman who did. Oh, was it Ralph Baxi? Ralph Bashke, yeah. You know, during that same window of time, Rankin Bass slid in there and also snagged some of the film rights from the, the J.R.R. Tolkien estate. And so they did their version of you know The Hobbit, which would then went on to, to win a Peabody Award in 77. And then because Bashke originally planned on doing the full set of Lord of the Rings books, and you know when those op- rights lapsed, uh, Rankin Bass stepped in and they did sort of the tail end of the story, The Return of the King, in 1980. And after that, Rankin Bass, as a production company, kind of ran out of steam in, in the late 70s, early 80s. And at that point, uh, Bass retires to France, where he, he began writing vegetarian cookbooks and passed away just uh, last week in an assisted living facility in Rye, New York. And I guess it kind of speaks volumes that those little wireframe characters that he invented, you know, for example, the 47-minute long Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special, just last year or, or thereabouts came up for auction. Every so often, I want to say Rudolph and the Burr Lives version of uh, Sam the Snowman, uh, you know, come on the market again because they, they made a, a bunch of them to... Well, again, you know, Drew, from you know, the way stop motion works, it's like they work at five and six at, at the very least different sets, sometimes as many as, what, 60 at a time? Yeah, Pinocchio had 60 sets, yeah. And so there's there's no one puppet of Pinocchio, or, you know, there, so there was no one puppet of, of Rudolph or, or Sam the Snowman or that sort of thing. But I want to say the last time a set of them came on the market, they auctioned them off, I want to say, for close to $300,000 just for teeny tiny little wireframe things that very tough to, to, to maintain. And I, in fact, I, I remember the story that Jules himself gifted a Sam the Snowman and a, a Rudolph to his longtime secretary. And they were part of the family's holiday decorations for years. They would just put them up on the mantle and generations of grandchildren had broken all the wires and such in the legs and it, it before they could put them up for auction they had to restore the figures can i just give one rankin bass t- tidbit real quick before, sure, we, sure, before sure. we go off of this yep mm-hmm. so you brought up the the J.R.R. tolkien work yep. that they did and that animation the the traditional animation was done by topcraft mm-hmm. which was a studio that basically predated uh, Studio Ghibli, and they did all the animation for Nausicaa of the did Valley they of the Wind. Really? Yes. Wow. And and Top Topcraft after after uh, Ghibli was formed, they mm-hmm. actually created the same animators created Pacific Animation Corporation, mm-hmm. which did animation for a bunch of Saturday morning cartoons that we've all seen, like Thundercats. Mm-hmm. And that studio was bought out by Disney. 
in the late 80s to become oh. Walt Disney Animation Japan. Jim, it all comes <laughs> together there. That's my little wow. spiel. So there you go. Uh, no, that's a great that, that that's a great addendum to the story. And and now now I have to go back and watch The Hobbit and Return mm-hmm. of the King because if it's Nausicaa quality, I, you know, suddenly I want to see it again. I know it kind of makes you want to go back and rewatch, but it does. It does. But on the other hand, I I have other things I have to do. I have to, to watch Wendell and Wild, you know, later today for for my Halloween treat, and I, and at the same time, I, you know, while I'm out running errands, I will of course be listening to the latest Light the Fuse. What's going on with Light the Fuse this week? This week we we revisited uh, our interview with Robert Ellswit. It was a multi mm-hmm. multi part episode that we've repackaged as one, so you can just mm-hmm. enjoy it now with some new intros and some new kind of background information. Mm-hmm. But that's a really special episode. He is obviously a legendary cinematographer, mm-hmm. and yeah, very much worth a, a listen if you haven't heard it or if you. It, it's been I think I think we recorded it in 2018, so mm-hmm. you know definitely revisit it. It's a, a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, I have no idea what we're doing this week. <laughs> It's another, this is another reason I'm pulling my hair out as I'm talking to you. But uh, yeah, we'll have something, I promise. And speaking of good stuff, we have a couple other podcasts here. We've got, of course, Disney Dish uh, that I do with Len Testa. Likewise, we have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams. Likewise, uh, Brian Gunn and I will be recording a brand new Looking at Lucasfilm later this week. And God help me, I'll get a universal joint out the door uh, in the next day or so as well. So keep an ear out for, for those folks. Drew, where can they find you on social media? Uh, Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt on Instagram and Twitter. Mm. Okay. As for social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram uh, as Jim Hill Media. And over on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. That's going to do it for this week. So thanks again for listening. And Drew and I will be back soon.